Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we're going to talk about three stories. One, the U.S. border and the southern border, uh, people, price, and politics. And today is D-Day, 75th anniversary of D-Day. We'll talk about that. And finally, in 2020, what we have on the ballot is the fundamental transformation versus America first. We really going to have to focus on which matters to us. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm going to do a long segment in just a minute about D-Day. Today's the 75th anniversary of D-Day. But I want to start out by talking about what's happening at the southern border. So my first five today, I want to hit a couple of points about the battle ongoing at America's southern border. You likely read that there were, in the last week, videotapes made of people crossing the river, you know, crossing the... Uh, in. in uh, from Mexico into America, uh, the Rio Grande River. These were people from Africa, from the continent of Africa, from three countries, uh, Cameroon, Congo, and Angola. And the Border Patrol actually videotaped these people crossing the border, some with children on their shoulders. These, so these are people coming across the southern border from Mexico into Texas, from Africa. I want that to sink in a bit because we are in an ongoing battle about whether or not we care if we have an enforceable southern border, if we have a southern border at all. So the argument that the people who are coming across our border are simply starving people from Latin America who need to come to America and find jobs, our southern border is now worldwide news. People around the world who want to come to America simply because life is better here understand that we don't enforce our borders. That's why people from Africa would be coming across the southern border. And now I'm going to turn to what President Trump is trying to do about his latest effort. He had, as you know, asked for money to build the wall in the areas of the border where it's otherwise not enforced and couldn't get Congress to fund the wall. As he requested, he's using some money that was already in the military budget to build some portions of the wall. He then asked the Democrat-controlled U.S. House, he asked Congress, to allot money not for the wall, but just for enhancing the border in terms of things like paying enough people to work down there, ex uh, expanding the facilities we have available in the, along our southern border to make the, um, uh, to house people as they come across, especially people coming across with children, um, have to be housed at the southern border because they're seeking asylum and we have to do a proper assessment of the asylum requests. This also the Democrat Congress would not fund. And I just want to get to the point of, of my, one of my central points in today's first five. If it is not yet obvious, the Democrat Party in this country, one of the two political parties has no interest, has no willingness, has no will to secure the southern border. They do not care. They do not want it enforced. They will not fund it. They will not fund enforcement. 
So President Trump tried something in the past few days, which is he announced that he is going to impose tariffs. This idea um, of putting tariffs on items coming up to America from Mexico with the idea that they're supposed to start this coming Monday. The tariffs are supposedly going to start this coming Monday, uh, June 10th, and it's a, uh, it's a tariff that he's going to impose starting at um, 5% of items coming from Mexico, but uh, increasing five percentage points every month month until it gets to 25% um, of tariff on, on items coming from Mexico. His point, President Trump's point, is that Mexico doesn't try at all, at all, to stop these caravans. Mexico does not do anything to help this crisis at the southern border. In fact, it appears in many ways the Democrats are, the, uh, the Mexicans are participating in and permitting the southern border crisis. In fact, there were statements out of the president of Mexico's, not him personally, but out of his office, that he sees this as a great opportunity that America's southern border could be overrun by so it's like colonizing the southern part of the United States with people crossing over from Mexico. There is no interest and no effort made on the part of the, uh, very little effort made on the part of the country Mexico to stop the caravan. So President Trump is now saying, well, okay, if we can't get anything, we can't get wall funding, we can't get funding to at least help our Border Patrol people, well, let's at least get funding, uh, let's at least get tariffs. Make this hurt. Make the country of Mexico suffer um, with tariffs if they won't help with this border security problem. Well, Trump has now run into the Republicans, even the, uh, the Republican-controlled Senate. There is some talk that the Republicans will not back President Trump on this uh, tariff idea. And so Mitch McConnell's made some noise about it. You know, maybe the Republicans in the Senate are going to stop this. You know, we may block him on, this tariff, on these tariffs. This is going to get probably all the way to the Supreme Court, whether President Trump has the right to impose these tariffs on our southern border, over Mexico, not because as a normal action of trade with Mexico, but as an element, as a tool uh, to fight what's Mexico's, you know, to fight Mexico, to stand up against them. So you've got to do something about our southern, our, the southern border. So I want to just mention a couple of things that are, are really um, they're, uh, coming to a head about this. Um, the reason Trump has to use tariffs is because the Constitution requires that all spending bills come out of the U.S. House, and the, the Democrat-controlled House simply will not, in any way, assist President Trump in getting the um, in getting the southern border secure in any way. They won't. They won't assist with border security. They won't fund the wall. And so Trump is essentially saying he's got authority under this International Emergency Economic Powers Act. This is President Trump's assertion of his authority. Under the International Ec Emergency Economic Powers Act, he's claiming he has right to, to um, impose these tariffs under that because we actually have an emergency at the southern border. This is going to get played out in Washington between, I, I don't know what the Senate's going to do, I don't know what President Trump's going to decide, but he's, for now, he's saying we're, we're doing the tariffs and that's that. But really, I want to, you know, the, can I kind of close out this first five today to say that America needs to recognize what is at stake in this battle. It's not just are we going to fund enough money to build the wall or are we going to fund are we going to employ enough people to actually work the southern border? 
are we willing to reassert as a country that we actually care about our borders, that we actually want enforceable borders in our country, and that we will do whatever it takes to get them, legally, I mean. So President Trump, he's being stymied by the Democrats at every turn, won't fund him, won't help. And they, of course, are opposed to this idea of President Trump imposing tariffs on Mexico as a vehicle to arm twist Mexico to start to help with the caravans. The Democrats are saying you can't do that, and, and they're complaining about that. We also have the battle uh, with, the, with Congress with respect to these tariffs, um, this whole idea that you can't put tariffs on items from Mexico because it'll make life inconvenient in America. That we may, that we may actually in America struggle uh, because we have to pay more for avocados because we import so many of our avocados from Mexico. We have these astonishingly petty, whiny people, CNN being a, a large player, but others also claiming that the tariffs are unjustified because the American people might suffer. I ask you to think about this. How will we suffer in this country long term if we just abandon the southern border? Which it seems to be the goal of the Democrats. So how will we suffer? We, are, we clearly aren't going to have any ability on our southern border to prevent people from coming across. So right now we're seeing we've already had across the southern border you know, drug smugglers and, and people smugglers and criminals and gang members and Islamic terrorists in the Middle East. Now we're seeing people coming from Africa. If we telegraph to the whole world, it's not even telegraph, just say to the whole world, hey, we have no southern border. Anyone can come here. Nobody gets stopped. Come on in. What is the price America will pay if we lose our southern border, whatever it is, whatever that, I mean, the, the, price is, the price is essentially the loss of America, the loss of sovereignty, the loss of the idea of a country. And you know what? I'm willing to pay a little more for guacamole, a little more for avocados and other items from Mexico in order, because that's a, that, I'd rather make that sacrifice. I'd rather have the, the deep suffering that the leftists are complaining about because items from Mexico will cost more money I'll take that as opposed to suffering that will come to America if we simply decide we are too weak-kneed, jelly-spined, and afraid of the left to stand up and say we have to have an enforceable southern border. Mexico is facilitating this whole asylum free rider mentality, this whole idea that pretty much anyone can come here and that once they claim asylum, people show up at our border, they've got a paper in front of them that tells them the words they have to use to meet our asylum law standards. We can't even house the people coming across anymore. There's so many of them. So we release them and say, be sure to come back for your asylum hearing. And of course, they never do. So is becoming, I mean, the idea that the left is still trying to say there's no crisis at the border. Some of the Democrat presidential candidates are laughing at the idea we have a crisis at the southern border. We don't have a border. If you don't have a border, you don't have a country. So whether or not tariffs, generally speaking, should be used to coerce other nations to do things that are outside of trade, whether this tariff imposition by President Trump is contrary to the usual use of tariffs, the usual use of trade with, with our, our, southern, uh, our neighbor in the southern border, he has been left no options because the left does not want a secure border. Once you understand that fact, once you understand that fact, 
I, I, what else is it President Trump is supposed to do? He's raised the issue. He's pointed out. He has videotape. He's gone down there. He has Border Patrol putting out videos on Twitter saying, look at all these people coming across. And the American left is simply refusing to do anything about the border. Folks, I am tired and just sick to death of listening to the critics of President Trump talking about his misuse of tariffs and mis- you shouldn't be saying that and you know people might have to pay too much for uh, uh, guacamole for a while because we can't get Mexican avocados because of the tariffs. We have to decide we're serious about a border. So in closing this, our first five today, I cannot urge you strongly enough to read what I'm putting up on our website, americacanbetalk.org, read the stories, read the numbers, understand it's a crisis. It's nothing less than that. And if the American left, and frankly, some of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate don't like the idea of tariffs, then they better come up with some other way, some other actually viable an effective way to secure our southern border. Because so far, all the Congress has done is stall the president, stand in his way, block what he's trying to do in securing the southern border, and now to think they're getting on their high horse about tariffs, given all, for Mexico, given all the circumstances of the southern border, it is simply outrageous. The idea that our U.S. government is, our president is, his hands are tied by politics, so he's supposed to surrender the security of the southern border. And that is something, thank goodness, President Trump is unwilling to do. And that, my friends, is today's first five. Well, as I mentioned at the start of the show, today is the uh, 75th anniversary of D-Day. And so I want to talk about a variety of things related to D-Day. First of all, I'm sure you all know, but D-Day, so it was June 6, 1944. It was the day that the Allied forces chose to uh, actually got ready and, and entered through the beaches of Normandy, entered into, the, into World War II, pushed back against the German occupation, which had pushed its way across Europe from Germany and through Austria and France, and, and they had pretty much occupied Western Europe. The German Nazi army was intending to control the world. America got in kind of late. We got in on this June 6, 1944. But what I really want to talk about, I want to talk about some of the some of the details and the suffering that actually happened on June 6, 1944, the ways America thought about the idea of our having to go over to France, having to go to the beaches of Normandy, having to invade, to push back the Nazi expansion. Um, and But I want to start with, there was a... Um, a famous prayer that uh, the FDR, who was our president at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, had a public prayer asking for blessing on the soldiers who were heading over to do the invasion at Normandy. I'm going to start with that clip. Have you hear what uh, Donald Franklin? Oh, let me tell you that today, being the 70th anniversary, President Trump read out loud the prayer that Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued the day of the invasion. So I want to first play President Trump saying that prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. They will need thy blessings, for the enemy is strong.
He may hurl back our forces, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by Thy grace and by the righteous of our cause, our sons will triumph. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, the heroic servants, into Thy kingdom. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in Thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, and faith in our united crusade. Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. I have to tell you, folks, the idea of a modern president, a modern-day president, reading that prayer to America. First of all, I love that President Trump read it. I love that the words of that prayer were so emotion-evoking, so profound, so important. And he talked about recognizing that what we were facing, World War II, with the Nazis trying to overtake the world, it was a struggle for our civilization. It was a struggle for our religion. It was about the idea of preserving Western civilization, freedom. It was about the idea of preserving the idea of America and the rest of the world, countries that want to live in freedom. We were able to recognize the enemy at that time. And it was a obviously a physical enemy, a horrific enemy. The, the Nazis were just, uh, you know, horrible, horrible stories recounted uh, of the conduct of the Nazis throughout World War II. But that prayer of just recognizing that the America needed God's blessing on our soldiers and to pray it publicly, to let the people of America know that their prayers were needed to preserve and protect uh, our, our soldiers as they went into battle uh, and, and obviously many of them not ever coming home. So uh, a, a profound, profound thing um, that uh, FDR read. That was the first thing I wanted to mention to you. Um, and then the second thing is that, um, so President Trump is over there right now and he made some remarks uh, that I have, I believe I sent to uh, my happy producer, Matt, some uh, remarks that Trump made on, on D-Day. Um, uh, in addition to reading FDR's prayer, there was, there was one other uh, set of comments he made. He's obviously standing there with Theresa May, the Prime Minister of England. I want to play briefly those remarks, too. Melania and I are honored to return to London as our nations commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day in World War II. We want to thank Her Majesty the Queen, who I had a lovely dinner with last night, a fantastic person, fantastic woman, for so graciously inviting us to this state visit. It was very, very special. Our thanks as well to Prime Minister and Mr. May for the warm welcome they've given the First Lady and me as we remember the heroes who laid down their lives to rescue civilization itself. On June 6, 1944, tens of thousands of young warriors left these shores by the sea and air to begin the invasion of Normandy and the liberation of Europe and the brutal Nazi occupation. It was a liberation like few people have seen before. Among them were more than 130,000 American and British brothers in arms. Through their valor and sacrifice, they secured our homelands and saved freedom for the world. You know, I'm going to just tell you some rough numbers. 
and I'm getting to get to a point to, about this related to today, but this was an invasion where, you know, the people being, we watch movies now, we see how what the invasion of Normandy was like, we see some clips they do have, and literally these young men getting, uh, getting off their boats, getting off their ships, and heading into uh, the Normandy invasion, they were facing almost certain death, and they knew it. I mean, part of FDR's prayer was acknowledging most of them, many of them won't come home. So some numbers, just roughly, so you have these in mind. And all about 225,000 service members killed or wounded or went missing in Normandy from June till August 1944, including 134,000 Americans, 91,000 Britons, Canadians, and Poles, and 18,000 French civilians. So 134 of Americans uh, in the few months from June 6, 1944 through August to just secure the beach and begin moving uh, in France and moving to push the uh, German forces back. These young men knew they were headed for their death. Many, many, they, all, they had to know what was going to happen. And so this was a, I, I want to talk about from a number of levels, but uh, to start with, people had a clearer sense at that time, it seems, of the goodness of America, of the rightness of the idea of liberty, of the idea that their evil exists in the world, and because it exists, you have to fight it. You can't make evil go away. And these were real, in your face, uh, uh, you know, just horrific deaths suffered by so many of these young men. In fact, the average age of the American who lost their life, the life on June 6, 1944, in the invasion at Normandy, the average age of the American soldier, 19. 19. Think about the 19-year-olds here today, which I'm going to get to in the next segment. 19-year-olds whose biggest issue in life is if someone used an incorrect pronoun who need safe spaces at college because they can't stand hearing someone say ideas they don't agree with. I mean, the valor, the strength, the patriotism, the bravery of the young men back 75 years ago, 19-year-olds showing up at the beach of Normandy, sent off, and most of them knowing they wouldn't come back, and many did not. So I want to get that picture of where what happened there, and then I want to play the next little clip. This is Ronald Reagan, but I want to mention something before you play this clip. So Normandy happened, obviously, fortunately for mankind, the Allied forces prevailed and, you know, America and our allies ultimately defeated, completely defeated Germany um, and Japan and Italy. So we, you know, we, we won the war. It came at great personal cost, great loss of life, great suffering, unimaginable suffering. But we knew it had to be done. We knew that evil had to be squashed. We knew it had, that it required bravery, it required sacrifice, it required people at home having to sacrifice, having their dads and their husbands and their brothers and their family members there. They had to be sent off because otherwise the world was facing a horrific fate. We understood that enough to send people to fight. But after people came back, after World War II was over, and even those who survived the Normandy invasion, for many, many years, few of them talked about it. It was not, this 75th anniversary of the invasion of Normandy, of D-Day, um, was, um, was not a holiday, it wasn't a big deal until Ronald Reagan brought it back. And he gave a famous speech um, in uh, 1984. And this is a Reagan speech um, where he, he was at this area called Point de Hoc. It was halfway between Omaha Beach and Utah, 
Beach, different beaches in Normandy where they were, uh, where the invasions were occurring. And so Ronald Reagan gave this speech, the most heartfelt speech, and he, in this time, so 1984, so it was a 40th anniversary, he really reignited in people recognition of the valor, the bravery, the suffering, the sacrifice, not just to honor the people who did it, although he was honoring them, but recognizing and, and calling to our attention again, you have to fight evil in this world if you want to live in freedom. So here's Ronald Reagan. Europe was enslaved and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here, the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely, windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men, and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. The rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers, the edge of the cliffs, shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades. And the American rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. And behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Hope. Uh, it's a great speech, in fact, on our website, which is americancanwetalk.org, or you can just go Google, go to YouTube and Google Reagan D-Day, and the speech will come up. The whole speech is so eloquent. Uh, it was when Peggy Noonan had her head on straight and used to write good speeches. Um, this was a Peggy Noonan written speech, and it's just stellar. In any case, it really memorialized the, the sacrifice, the suffering, the, the, this, the immensity of the consequence of the willingness of these people to fight, to come over to uh, Normandy and fight for, really, freedom, right? fight for the freedom of the world. Part of the problem that caused such immense damage, uh, immense harm, such an immense battle, uh, was that earlier in the, in the rising years of Hitzer, Hitler's Nazism, um, the world cowered. The world was too many in the world were a little bit too afraid to speak up about Hitler. They they heard the rise of really uh, you know the Nazism. They understood that Jews were being persecuted in Germany. They understood that the Nazis had made them into uh, the Jewish problem or requiring them to wear the yellow star. All of that. We didn't stand up early enough to call evil evil. And we had, of course, everyone knows the famous 
controversy uh, in England uh, between Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill. Neville Chamberlain being the prime minister who, uh, after being warned repeatedly by Winston Churchill and others, you know, you got to do something. Hitler's advancing. And, you know, Neville Chamberlain darts over to Germany, meets with Hitler, and comes back with a napkin or a piece of paper waving, you know, peace in our time, don't worry. Hitler promised he'll leave us alone. That, that's what he was saying. Hitler, don't worry. I met with Hitler. He, you know, he promised no matter what else he's done, all these people he's hurting and killing, but don't worry, not us. Of course, Neville Chamberlain finally had to, you know, was shown to the world to be not just wrong, but dangerously wrong. And he was shown to be a coward. He was shown to be a guy who was going to say, you know, I'm just not going to spend time uh, and, and risk lives and risk uh, the, you know, the soldiers' lives, risk the, the British military um, strength fighting this guy if they don't have to. That's really what Neville Chamberlain decided. So fortunately for the world, Winston Churchill uh, came along and just, you know, recognized we will fight in the air, we will fight in the sea, we will fight till we defeat this. But part of the difference between those two was that Winston Churchill very early on discerned the evil and called it that, discerned the evil of Hitler, of Germany, of Nazism, and said, we have to fight. Hitler saw it and he, excuse me, I'm so sorry. Hitler was a terrible, uh, you know, just, just the most evil of our, in that time. And Winston Churchill saw it and he was laughed. He was mocked, laughed at. He was mocked. He had, I mean, Neville Chamberlain and his allies just treated him as a fool. Winston Churchill doesn't know what he's talking about. And obviously it took Winston Churchill to, to really, again, to finally go to power, recognize we have to fight against Hitler and rallied the world, ultimately got America involved. And I, I you know, we, I, there's so much more to tell you about America's role on D-Day. You know, the reason we have, I, I have all sorts of data about the number of munitions and ships and and uh, instruments of war that were produced in America because we had an industrial society. We had, had the Industrial Revolution. We had a productive society. We could produce the things needed, massive numbers of, uh, and just massive equipment needed in order to make this whole thing happen. So America had a huge role in saving the world from Hitler. And it really, uh, I go back to again, Normandy. I, I've not been to Normandy, by the way. I really want to go someday. I want to see Normandy. I want to walk where all the soldiers are buried, where the, you know, we, we left our soldiers there. All we asked was room to bury them. The famous um, statement about America's bravery and our soldiers. But I think it's just a, it's a really important time on D-Day to recognize not just honoring their sacrifice, and that is a huge thing to honor their sacrifice, but it's also important to recognize we got to that point because we wouldn't call evil evil. Because we would not agree that sometimes because evil exists, you have to fight. And because we had a sense in America of the rightness and goodness of America, and that America was worth defending, worth fighting for, America and Western civilization, Western Europe, UK, all over the world, the ideas of freedom and liberty, the ideas that America was founded on, they were worth fighting for. We knew it better then than we know now. Which now turns to my last topic for today. I want to talk about, in this last topic for today, where we are in terms of the, um, as we face the 2020 presidential elections. And I know they're a ways off. I haven't noticed. They're a year and a half away. But it's already shaping up to be a battle, the 2020 elections, kind of between 
the fundamental transformation that Barack Obama pushed and the America First idea that President Trump stands for. And I say that for very serious reasons. I know, I know, thank heavens, Barack Obama's not on the ballot again, but what he was trying to do in America and the fundamental transformation has a lot to do with what we just talked about on D-Day. So to start with, when President Obama was running for office, he had a lot of very happy sounding, friendly sounding, um, you know, wonderful, uh, you know, ideas that he was going to fundamentally transform. He got people, he was famous for getting crowds of young people stirred up and cheering him on when his speeches basically said nothing. If you ever heard those parodies, you'd have people read out loud Obama's speeches. He just got an earnest look on his face, but he said nothing, but he said profound sounding words, fundamental transformation. And people said, oh, wow, that sounds so cool. And they, they, they got, they bought into it. They got drawn in, they got sucked in, they got duped. So we had eight years of President Obama and his fundamental transformation of America. And I want to talk about, and why I'm on this is because Obama thought after eight years, he would then orchestrate the election of Hillary Clinton, who would continue his radical leftist fundamental transformation of America. That's what he thought. What Obama was pushing was so radical, so leftist, but people in America duped by the idea of his, his alleged eloquence and his proud stance and speak, you know, demeanor, the way he spoke, people got duped by it. But I want to just remind you what really happened uh, under President Obama, because this is what he was talking about. The fundamental transformation is exactly what the left-wingers running for president in 2020 will do. And I sent my friend Matt here, the great producer, one slide. And you know what? You don't even have to be able to read those words. I'm going to tell you, this information on this slide is from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. This is not Republican Party propaganda. This is not a politician's propaganda. It's the Federal Reserve's data of St. Louis. And what these figures reflect are the, tw uh, the eight years under President Obama. What happened? Okay, top left, student loan debt. You can see the way the chart, student loan debt, through the roof. Student loan debt went up because the government took control of the student loan program, because Obama is a leftist and taking control of everything possible in a free society is the goal of every leftist on this planet. Next slide, food stamps. The, the people who uh, came to rely on food stamps, you can see the numbers staggering, uh, bottom left to top right way shooting up on food stamps because leftists try to make people reliant on government. It is the purpose of leftism. It is centralized power in Washington to make people defend, dependent on the government, to make them weak, to take away their self-reliance, to grow government's power and control over their lives. Federal debt under Obama. You can see bottom left to top right, federal debt shot up. He's not the only one. I can blame a lot of Republicans, too, on debt. But the point of this returning to the fundamental transformation mindset that Obama tried to bring, which is what all of the Democrat candidates running are standing for, this is the harsh reality of it. Okay, middle row on the left, money printing. 
What the left did, they used a fancy term, quantitative easing, but because the economy was so poor, so bad, they had to keep on printing money that had no value. The value go down, but they just print more. It's a fake way of solving any problem. Middle one, health insurance costs. When Obama came to power, 2008, he went for immediately the socialized takeover of our health care system. Went for Obamacare, first chance he had. What happened to our health care costs, contrary to all the promises, health care costs shot through the roof. You can see again the top right of the column. Next, we're in the middle row now, on the far right, labor force participation. Drastic drop off from the top left to the bottom right. And then we're in the middle column, middle row rather, on the right. Labor force participation. In plain English, it means the number of people who are working age who actually were working greatly was reduced under the Obama left wing centralized power in Washington, government controlled economy. Nobody had a job just like the leftists like it because if you don't have a job, you rely on the government. Bottom column, bottom row, so bottom left. Now workers share the economy. In short, this is kind of an interesting one. This is what the Obama economy was. Bottom left, the workers share the economy. What that means is when businesses are making money, businesses are doing well, so people are earning money, so you have money going into the private sector employment, employees, the portion of money that workers received went down. The percent of the workers, you know, of the money coming into private employment that goes to the workers diminished, meaning despite the fact the left always claims they stand for the worker or they stand for the individual and the poor worker, the fact is your economy was so poor, so bad, that the workers share the economy greatly diminished. Middle or the bottom row, middle item, medium, fa- median family income. Again, a bit of a rise and then a drastic drop down again. Again, because left-wing policies make people poor. Because median, median family income, of course, went down under President Obama because left-wing, big government-controlled economy policies like Obama loved make people poor. Final bottom right, home ownership, you can see again, where it starts top left to the bottom right, goes down under President Obama and left-wing ideas. So this is the reality of the economy under President Obama and the idea of what the left is pushing in this country. The other point I want to make about this whole le- this idea, what we have in front of us in the elections of 2020, you have President Obama come to power, took over the health care system, destroyed private health insurance, made it more expensive for everyone, corrupted the the Internal Revenue Service because it, it, he weaponized the IRS against his political enemies, the Tea Party, who were trying to stand up for freedom. Everything about the Obama years was radical leftism. Guy, in, under the guise or under the, the uh, umbrella of appearing to be compassion, caring, wanting to help. And, and this all started with the reason President Obama embraced, and, and he writes about this, embraced his radical leftist ideas is because at the core, in his growing up life, he was never taught the love of America. He was never taught 
the goodness of America. He wrote about America as, a, as in many ways and spoke about it as a country that was uh, a colonial power. It was to be diminished. He wanted to reduce America's role in the world. He didn't want America to be a leader, didn't want America to stand up for freedom. He had this leftist just detesting the idea of individual freedom, which is a core American idea. He saw America's history as bad and imperialist and colonial. He spoke of America's history as toxic. He was repeating the ideas of the American left that criticized America. So we had, he wanted to remake America's image on the global stage, which he did. He tried to diminish America's importance and surrender to globalism and the United Nations. Uh, he massively increased centralized power in Washington. This is one of the main reasons President Trump came along and said, you know, we're going to get rid of some of these regulations. So he, Trump said, for every one regulation that gets added, that they, the agencies in Washington had to take away one regulation. They went one step further, and for every regulation added, took away two regulations. Just in one year, the federal government reduced in 2018 100 federal regulations that massively, this was the this was Obama-era use of the power he had to expand the administrative state, to expand the power, the centralized power in Washington by regulation, by regula regulatory fiat, strangling industries, strangling uh, progress and the idea of an abundant American free market economy. We had socialized medicine takeover, destruction of that. We had um, Dinesh D'Souza put in prison for for violating a law which others in the same era violated and nothing happened to them or they didn't go to prison but Dinesh D'Souza going to prison this was the this is the left-wing mindset of abuse of power if you have power you can abuse it by using it to retaliate and si against and silence your political enemies and you know we're gonna have to wrap up for today but I'm gonna come back to this topic next week because I really I want to just drive this point home America's economy is strong right now and employment numbers are wonderful, and the unemployment rate is low for every category of a worker, and our economy is booming because of ideas. It's not the personal magic of President Trump. It is the force of him taking the right ideas and implementing them and using them and talking about them and sharing them and, put, and weaving them into our policy. But America is strong now because of freedom and the free market ideas that President Trump embraces. America was weak under President Obama because of the left-wing ideas he embraces. You can't have the left-wing ideas Obama loved and prosperity and abundance and job security and the, the booming economy we have right now. You can't have left-wing ideas and prosperity. You can't have Obama-era left-wing ideas and a proliferation of jobs. We have more jobs available than people available to fill them now in our country. So what we just covered about the contrast in the eight years under Obama to where we are now under President Trump, they're economic factors, but they go to a deeper point about love of America and recognition of America's inherent goodness. Not because of skin color, race, or identity, or national identity, but entirely, entirely because of the ideas of our founding that President Trump is bringing back, reintroducing to America. The ideas of America's founding are ideas that the American left simply cannot 
tolerate. They do not love the America of, found, of our founding, the idea of individual liberty and self-reliance and personal responsibility. And the consequence of those ideas are the charts you saw when Pres under President Obama's eight years, what happens to America when you embrace left-wing centralized power in Washington. Next week, I'm going to talk about how the Occupy Wall Street movement and other progressive ideas infected the political climate of our country also hurt our country during the years of Obama. And it's not just Obama's left-wing thought, which he embraces and which the Democrat presidential candidates now running also embrace. But we're almost out of time. I want to quick run through these, uh, why this matters to you. Uh, and this is Africans, for example, at the southern border. The U.S. southern border is in crisis and Trump and only Trump, not the Democrats and not even the GOP, only Trump is trying to solve it. Africans at the border kind of blows away the argument about this spontaneous invasion of people who are starving in Honduras. We have a border that has absolutely no security. Okay, every politician, Democrat or GOP, dragging their feet on, on border security and funding the wall and funding security, our question for them is, what is your plan? Next, this D-Day 75 years ago, Stories of heroism, I could have filled the whole show with stories of heroism. 19-year-olds, I can get to the story of the war back, happy next week. 19-year-olds staving it off, retail workers, average Joe Americans turning into paratroopers, putting the lie to the left-wing argument, Obama and others and Hillary and the leftist candidates running for president talk about American imperialism. That it is a lie about America when they characterize America that way. All America took was a cemetery plot uh, to bury our dead over there. Freedom is worth fighting for again 75 years ago on D-Day. We are in an internal war in America in 2019 with the radical left. The stakes are just as high as World War II. The enemy doesn't wear a uniform, but it must be defeated through the elevation and victory of right ideas. The left-wing ideas that crushed our economy, crushed our culture, hurt America in the eight years of Obama and other times in left, in the, when leftists take charge. Those ideas are what are on the ballot in 2020. So we need to be telling our friends to join and understand the battle we face in America today. Final one, 2020, competing visions for America. We had eight years of Obama's radical leftism. It brought America to the brink. Hillary would have continued it. Trump arrived in the scene in the nick of time. America First has given America a fighting chance for revival and restoration. Now, I've got to tell you, friends, Americans should deliver a landslide to President Trump in 2020. But it's going to take every one of you listening to this show, every one of you engaged in the political battle of our times, to speak up for and repeat these points I've been making today, to tell your friends what happened under the Obama-era economy, what happened to the culture of America, how we got to a place where millennials think America is a bad country. It didn't come out of thin air. It came from radical leftism as being taught to our young people. We, those who love this country, need to be trying to fix that. I'm Debbie Georgettis. This is America Can We Talk. Talk to you Monday. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear